All right, we're gathered to talk about omnipresence, just to make sure you're in the right, the right room. We are starting on time, and according to the clock behind me, we have to finish at 2.45, so we've got uh, about four hours. <laughs> and uh, you, you have an outline in front of you. If you, if you don't get some of the blanks filled in, filled in, I'll just mention that the CD that you got in your notebook has the completed form in it, so you'll be able to, to recover from that. And if you would, before the day's over, fill out that blue conference evaluation form. And if you have anything to say about this workshop, I'd appreciate knowing that because I want to be a better communicator. And I'll start off just by saying one thing I've noticed when I've been to some seminars, and, and this is a, a sin that afflicts many Christian men, is that of pride. And I've been at some seminars where I, I felt like the speaker was a little prideful. And, and that made it difficult for me to, to get past that, you know, and, and he was saying good things, and yet it was, it was a stopping point for me. And I don't want to stand in the way of God ministering to us today, so I, I want to ask you this favor. If during this presentation you think I'm being prideful, and, and you get to be the judge, would you just slip your hand up? You don't have to say anything. I'll know what you mean, and I will repent and endeavor to not get in the way of God and the scriptures anymore. So I'd appreciate that. So we're here today to talk about theology. And uh, sometimes that gets a bad name, doesn't it? Theology or doctrine. We've heard the phrase doctrine divides. But what is theology? Theos and logia. Theos is God. Logia is the utterances of or the sayings of. So theology is what? studying the utterances of God. So that's a good thing. There's a hundred people here today who took the day out to come and study God, to learn to love him with our minds, as we're told to do. So that's what we're gathered to do here in this, in this hour. So before we begin, let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, you have been good to us. As was mentioned in one of the sessions, you would have been just, perfectly just, in leaving us in our sin, in our misery. But you didn't do that. You were full of grace and truth. And you sent Jesus that we could be freed from the law, that he might die and give us life. And right away, those things are, are too high and, and too, too lofty and too awesome for us to even consider fully. So all we say is we are grateful and we are thankful. And we ask that you would give us strength and nourishment from the scriptures today. And for these ladies that have gathered here, we pray that uh, you would minister to them and minister uh, to all of our souls as we talk about you and learn to love you more. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we'll be looking at... Psalm 46. So let's turn there in our Bibles. We'll be staying pretty much in, in that psalm. It's a psalm that talks about the omnipresence of God. It talks about his power in his presence. It talks about counseling applications. So it's chock full of things. So let's read that whole psalm together. 
God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God shall help her in that right early. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved, he uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he has made in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear asunder. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Well, this is a true story that I read years ago. I've lost the reference, so I can't tell you exactly where I saw it. But a missionary couple went to Africa uh, to serve the Lord there, and they were loved and accepted by the people. And in time, the wife became pregnant. They made plans to journey to the mission hospital, but as, as God's plan would have it, the baby came early. And despite the husband's frantic efforts, their baby died. Of course, as you can imagine, news spread very quickly throughout that jungle community. And very shortly afterwards, people began to walk out of the jungle and sit down in the dirt around the hut of this missionary couple. And that's all they did. Finally, the husband went out and said, Why are you here? And he was told this. We heard about your baby. You don't have enough tears of your own, so we've come to give you some of ours. And what does that tell us? We've all experienced times of crisis and tragedy. And in those times, just the presence of a friend is a comfort to us. Well, Christian, God is very present to us. And he tells us to stand still and see his power. So the first thing we see in this psalm is that God is present with his people. He tells us that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. There's that word in verse 1, he is our refuge. He is refuge and strength for the Christian. As we're going to see later in the psalm, he is not a refuge and strength for the heathen. But this help is not for the wicked. God is afar off from them. God's help is for Christians. He tells us that God is our refuge and our strength. A place of safety where fears can be laid to rest. And it's, it's very much the image of a family. Mom is that place of comfort. Where do the children go when they get nervous or anxious? They hide behind mom's apron or her skirt or her pants. And we've seen that in the grocery store. We see it all over. But when a child needs help with the bully down the street, he goes to dad. So mom is a refuge and dad is the strength. And our father, God, is just like that. He is a place of refuge. 
and a place of strength for us. We need both of those. And our refuge, our God, is not a place, but it's God himself. And the second part of that verse says he is a very present help in trouble. So he is not distant. He is not up there in heaven, as sometimes we think of him. He is especially not the man upstairs, as some people refer to God in a very uh, much too familiar and casual way. He is very present. And those are two words there that are very interesting. Present is kind of on or off in the Hebrew. God is either there or he isn't. So for us as Christians, he's very present. So what that those two words are saying is he is completely complete in his presence to us. And there's two verses that are typically used very customarily to explain God's omnipresence to us. Jeremiah 23, prophet writes, Am I a God at hand and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I will not see him? Says the Lord, do not I fill heaven and earth? Says the Lord. And 1 Kings 8 says that, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built. Stephen Charnock is an old Puritan writer, and he wrote uh, a book about the attributes of God. And the quote from him says, As his eternity, as God's eternity renders him king always, that is, his, his kingship is eternal, so his immensity renders him king everywhere. So the doctrine of omnipresence talks about God being present with us, and immensity is kind of a subset of that, where God is so huge and so large and so complete that he fills all of creation. Now if you remember back to high school science class, we would take a, a, a colored gas and we'd put it in a beaker and we could see the gas would expand to fill uh, that whole beaker. Well, God isn't like that. He doesn't stretch himself out over the whole universe. He's completely present everywhere in the universe and even beyond. He's, he's far beyond the universe. So if I can say it reverently, in, in this little spot over here, God is completely present. And in, in this spot over here, God is completely present. And everywhere throughout all of creation and beyond, God is completely present. So we, we tend to think, well, we're praying to God, he's on his throne, he's in heaven. And this is something that's hard for us to get our arms around. He is completely present everywhere. Charles Hodge is another older theologian. He has this quote, and he says, As air is to the bird and water to the fish, so is God's presence to us. We're completely surrounded by his presence. Psalm 139 talks about his presence in the, in the same way and says, Where can I go to flee from your spirit or your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uppermost parts of the sea, 
There your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yes, the darkness hides not from thee or from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. And what is it that people who come for counseling sometimes think? Well, I can go over here, and we've seen those places of darkness, haven't we? Some of the, uh, the taverns aren't well lit. They're a place of, of darkness. Um, and what does this verse in Psalm 139 say? The night shines as the day. They're both the same to God. So if we think that we can move into the darkness and hide our sin, or a, a person comes for counseling, says, well, God won't see me over there. They're fooling themselves and we're fooling ourselves, aren't we? God sees it all. And there are these two uh, uh, theories, I guess we'll call them. Regression therapy and kind of the Christianized version is called inner healing. And both of those have attained some popularity. They're trying to explain why do bad things happen. And what inner healing is is a Christian version of regression therapy. And it says bad things happened because when that bad thing happened to you, God was not there. Now what do we know already, just from the few verses we've read? We've read that God is there. So they say, what you need to do is go back and relive this event, and we're going to relive it, and you're going to think in your mind, this time, Jesus is there with you. Well, right away we know that both of those things are unbiblical, because they maintain that God was not present. And inner healing maintains that if we can somehow envision that God was there with us, our, our current sinful pattern will be broken. And that's simply not true. We can't go to the past and relive that. And the whole premise is false. God is there and he was there. So if you look at your outline there, we ask the question, why do bad things happen? Well, there are several reasons. Uh, the first reason we have to look at, and the first thing that we need to do to ask ourselves when bad things happen is, is this a consequence for my sin? Isaiah 59 says that our iniquities have separated us from God. Our sins cause him to hide his face from us. So that's the first place we go. It's a consequence for sin. Bad things could happen also as a consequence for another person's sin that that we're involved with. If a husband robs the bank and gets sent to prison, the wife and the children pay a consequence for that sin of the husband. And the, the biblical example, of course, is Achan. He stole. Um, it's not recorded there in the scriptures that his family stole, but his family paid a price for that, and they were stoned along with Achan. A serious price to pay. Well, let's say we've looked at our lives and we said, I, I don't know any sin. We've prayed and asked God to reveal that to us. Sometimes our sins are even hidden from us. And it's not our husband's sin or a spouse's sin. And we say, I, I don't think it's sinful, a sinful reason for this bad thing. Well, what's the third reason? Well, John 9, there's that story of the blind man and the disciples go to Jesus and they ask him and they say, who sinned? This man or his parents, 
that he was born blind. And what does Jesus say? Neither, but that the works of God might be manifest in him. So if we've gone through those first two things, we said, I don't think it's sin. We're left, well, this thing happened to me because God wants to manifest his works through me, either just for me, which could be very, very much the case. He's going to increase my faith, or maybe for the world to see. And that's a good place to be, because what is God, in effect, saying to you when he does that? He's saying, I can trust that your faith is big enough to weather this storm, and I can trust you with manifesting my glory in you. And that's a good place to be. Uh, a lot of people come for counseling. I haven't used that third one that much in counseling because you usually you don't get too far past number one before you say, well, there's, there's some problems here. But for a counselor, let, let's say, as, as, as Pastor Glenn said earlier, we're, we're confessing our sin, we're, we're, we're seeing our weaknesses, we're, we're striving. For a Christian, that, that's, a, that's a great blessing to have God say, I'm going to manifest my glory through you. And in verse 5 then it says, God is our refuge and strength. And in verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. He shall help her and that right early. And this is an interesting word, midst. It's the, it's the Hebrew word karav, and it means close enough to touch. And the other instance of where this word is used is in uh, Exodus 36, where it's talking about Bezalel and the craftsmen, and they're building the tabernacle. And there are goldsmiths and silversmiths, makers of brass, stone cutters, carpenters, sewers, taxidermists. All these craftsmen have come to the work, and they took these hand tools, and they're making the tabernacle. And they have hammers, files, saws, needles, thread, all of that. Uh, linen becomes the curtain. Goat's hair becomes the tent that's the covering. Wood becomes those wallboards that are tightly fitted together. Silver becomes fittings for the wall. Gold becomes basins and labors and, and uh, candlesticks and, and all of that. And how did those craftsmen make those things? They took the raw material and they... they bent it, and they sanded it, and they pried it, and they molded it, and they poured it, and heated it, and they did all these things to it with their hands that close. And it had to be that way. It had to be perfect. And, and, and Bezalel was a master craftsman, um, the likes of which probably we don't see anymore today, because the tabernacle was going to stand as a representation of God's glory. It was going to be a way he was going to manifest his glory to people in the earth. It had to be perfect. And it had to be just right. And your minds have maybe already gone to a New Testament passage where we think of the very same thing in Ephesians 2. We think of worksmen and craftsmen and Bezalel and what does Ephesians 2 say? It says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to good works. So like in Exodus, God is the craftsman. And he is, as that word says here, he is in the midst of them. He's, 
He's close enough to touch. He's taking our lives and he's painfully sanding away the, the bad stuff and prying and molding and melting. And he's turning us into something perfect. The image of Christ. Because just like the tabernacle that was an earthly representation of God's glory, what are we? We're the same thing. We're an earthly representation of God's glory. You know how you go to the grocery store and you get those, those little plastic bags and you get about 10 of them in one hand and they weigh about 30 pounds and you carry them out to the car and what happens? You, you, you've got these marks in your hands, right? Or you grasp something so tightly it's, it's left in your hands. And what does God say through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 49? He said, Behold, I have engraved you upon my palms. God is holding us so tightly and, and molding us and shaping us and making us into what he wants us to be that we're, we're imprinted in his palms. That is not a God that's far off. That's a God that's close and, and intimate and desiring to work in his people's lives. So how does this affect our prayers? We know that God is very close to us. So sometimes we pray, God, be near to my son. Be near to my daughter. Well, what do we already know? God is near to, to my son or my daughter. So what we, I think what we mean is we, we're saying, God, we want you to work in their lives in kind of a, uh, as we've talked about, if I can say it this way, we know God is physically present. We know God is a spirit, so that's not entirely true. But he's, he's there in that physical presence, and we're saying, God, would you work in their lives in an ethical presence? Would you, would you save them? Would you draw them to yourself? Uh, would, you, would you help them, if they're Christians, to conquer that sin that, that they've had and, and help them not to get involved in this and that and help them to seek you? And as my wife and I often do, we get in the car on a trip and we pray before we start the trip, and what do we say? God, be with us on this trip. Well, what do we know? He, he is with us on this, this trip. We, what we really want, mean is protect us on this trip and, uh, and keep us safe and keep the car running and, and all of those sorts of things. And we, we get in church meetings and what do we pray there? God be with the missionaries. Well, he is with the missionaries. And we know what we mean by that. God, give them the strength to translate the scriptures. Give them the love for the people and the people to love them back. Give them uh, rest in their labors and if they're in places where there aren't facilities, help them in some way with those temporal needs of life. So we see that's what we're saying. We want God to be present ethically. We know he's, he's present with his spirit. And the biblical example of this is Paul. He... he uh, Paul just understood this so well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he, he uses uh, two different words, which you'll know the, the root word. The first word he uses is parakaleo, and we all know the word uh, paraclete for the spirit. So Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 1, this is the verses where it says, uh, 
take the comfort with which God has comforted you so that you can comfort others. So there's two words there. One is comfort, which is help, encouragement, and exhortation. Then the, the second time, or the second word Paul uses there is paraklesis, and it's talking about um, the God who comforts. He gives us help, encouragement, and exhortation, but he's also the paracleo. He's the one who is, uh, literally it means alongside. And the verb tense there is in the continuous form. So what Paul says is, I am getting help, encouragement, and comfort over and over and over and over again continually by the Spirit, by God who comforts me. We need that. And this verse uh, here in uh, Psalm 46, verse 5, is really fulfilled in Christ. What do we say at Christmas time? What do we call Christ? We call him Emmanuel. And what does it mean? We all know that. God is with us. God is close enough to touch. He's alongside us. He's molding us and he's making us into the Christians that, that we ought to be. And because God is near, this is point two on the outline, you don't need to fear anything. Anything that's large or small. We see that in verse two and three. Therefore we will not fear Though the earth be removed and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea and though the waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. And this is interesting language. Now it's, it's, it's cataclysmic language. And it is true. It can be taken in, in two different ways. But it's often, uh, you see it frequently in the Old Testament that language is used this way. Um, in Judges 5, it talks about the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. And it was victory over Canaan. Then Isaiah uses it in both chapter 13 and, um, and chapter 34. In chapter 13, he talks about the stars will not give light, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shine, the heavens will shake. And he's talking about the destruction of Babylon. Because that was the big city and uh, a great power. And he uses much the same language in Isaiah 34 to talk about the destruction of Edom. We know those are historical events. We can trace back to when they occurred. So the language can be taken two ways. Literally, yes. There are mountains that shake. There are volcanoes. There are earthquakes. There are tsunamis. In recent times, we've had a couple of those. Japan a couple years ago, and the Indian Ocean probably about 10 years ago now. And I'm sure if we searched through the internet, we would find true life accounts of people saying, I was in this flood, this tsunami, and God protected me and saved me. We would find that. I have no doubt that that would happen. So it's actual literal language, but it's also figurative as we've seen. I, I was at work a number of years ago, and a uh, fellow got fired in the middle of the day and went outside to have a, a couple words with him. And he said this, well, when I land on my feet, well, he wasn't suspended anywhere. His, his world had been shaken. And we talked to people that, that lose a loved one and 
They're in grief, and what do they say? My world was turned upside down. So we talk in much that same way as that kind of language. So this language represents real, actual disasters, but also big problems and big trials in life. But what does God tell us? You will not fear. God ministers to you and to me by his closeness in the big things and in all of the little things God ministers to us. And there's no better biblical example of that than Jonah. In chapter 1, the Bible says that Jonah rose up to flee from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 2 says Jonah prayed to the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. Now there's a big problem. There's a big trial. Remember back when, a minute ago we were talking about the ethical presence of God and sometimes we're tempted to say, Lord, why would you help me? I have failed you so many times. Why would you help me again? And, and what does the, the writer of Scripture tell us in Jonah chapter 3? Jonah fled from the Lord. He prayed out of the fish's belly. And Jonah chapter 3 gives these incredible words of comfort. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, when you and I are tempted to go, Lord, I... I've blown it so bad and so many times and so often and I should be further along than this and I'm, I'm struggling and I'm tired of my own sin. Um, there's an, a very uh, elderly theologian called G.I. Williamson who's written excellent theological books. He's in his 80s. One of the young men that, that we know went to do a summer internship with him. Here's this spiritual giant and the first day they're sitting at lunch, and this spiritual giant of a man looks at this young intern and says, I am so sick of being a sinner. Now, but that's where we need to be, isn't it? That's, that's part of who we are. And then there's still those, those dark spots. You know, uh, Ephesians 5 talks about Christ washing us with the word. And what else does it say? Well, his bride has spots and blemishes. What is he doing? He's, he's washing that spot. And he's, he's washing that blemish. And some of them we go, Ouch, Lord, that one stings a little bit. Can you go a little easier on that one? And to our shame, what else do we do? We say, Lord, I, I'm kind of used to that one. I like that one. Why don't you leave that one be a little bit? But the word of the Lord came to Jonah. We probably haven't blown it as bad as Jonah where we got in our car and said, I'm driving until there is no more God. And that's what Jonah did. So there's hope for us. So not only is God, point number three, not only is God very, very close to you, he's strong and powerful enough to conquer all of your enemies. We see that in verses 6, six through 9. The kingdoms were moved, the heathen raged, God uttered his voice, and the earth melted. 
And in the midst of that, it says, the Lord of hosts is with us. And the end result, Korah here writes in this psalm, and says, come behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he's made in the earth. He makes wars to cease, he breaks the bow, he cuts the spear, he burns the chariot in the fire. Literally, he's talking about maiming the bow and, and utterly destroying uh, these chariots and, this, and, and the spears. He's not just breaking them. He's breaking them in incredibly small pieces. Then he's putting them in a fire and he's burning them so that they no longer exist on the earth. Now, we have enemies. And sometimes we're tempted that we would like to have some some vengeance. And we don't perhaps say, I'm going to go get vengeance. And we may not even pray and say, Lord, you go get vengeance on them. But way back in that little corner of the mind, there's that thought, well, if something bad happened to them, I, I, I might like it a little bit. And what God is saying here to us, he's saying, let me do that. He said, you, you, Bob, you could destroy them, you could kill them, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to destroy them, I'm going to maim them, I'm going to break them in pieces, and I'm going to make sure that there's no remembrance of them on the earth. You let me handle that. And that's going to be a more complete destruction than we could ever hope for. And interestingly, verse 1 says God is our refuge and strength. He's omnipresent for us in that way. The only omnipresence of God that the heathen experience is right here in these few verses. This utter, complete, total destruction. But we have several ways that we experience God's presence. And there is a, uh, a good aspect of God's omnipresence as it relates to our sin and our sinfulness and our temptations. That's 1 Corinthians 10.13, which says, There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that what you are able, but will the temptation make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. So there is a good aspect of God's omnipresence to sin. Now, when we're tempted, where is God? Physically. He's as close as this air molecule can be to my skin. He's right there. And this verse is saying, where is God ethically when I'm tempted to sin? He's right there. He's seeing what's transpiring, and he says, I'm going to make a way for you to escape. That is such a comfort, isn't it? We don't even have to make our own way to escape from sin. We don't have to say, well, I'm just going to grit my teeth and pull myself up by my bootstraps. God is there making that way to escape. Now, let's flip that around. What's a bad aspect of omnipresence? When God's there and he makes that way to escape and we look him in the face and we say, God, I love this sin more than I love you. I'm going to do that. He's right there. And that's bad. But let's flip that one around. What else does God say? 
He says, if you confess your sin, I'm faithful and just to cleanse you and forgive you. So where is God when he, he gives us the awareness of our sin and we're motivated to confess it? Where is he then? He's still right there next to us hearing that confession. He provided a way of escape. We didn't take it. We learn our lesson. We utter those words of confession and God is right there all the time. And it's hard for us to, to have faith in that because humanly, if, if our husband or wife or son or daughter, if something bad happens, a lot of times they, they don't stay around, do they? They leave and they say, well, I've had it with you. But God is right there. He never says, I've had it with you. And here's a, a counseling application of, of conquering sin. Hidden here in these verses is a, is a positive image of what God is going to do for us. Verse 8 says, Come behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he has made in the earth. And that, word, uh, those, that phrase there, he has made in the earth, is literally translated, Bring about a change. Come behold and see what change the Lord has brought about. And it's used in the same way in Isaiah chapter 41. And Isaiah writes in verse 18, I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. And that's specifically for God's people. And sometimes that's your life, isn't it, and my life. It's a desert. It's a wilderness. There's no water. There's no rest. Our hope is, is small and dim and tiny. And there's no tsunamis. There's no tidal wave because there's no water. Even a little trickle of water. And in, in those situations, what happens? The littlest thing really throws us for a loop and we just get discouraged and what is God saying here he's saying I'm going to bring about a change the desolations he has made in the earth I'm going to change the earth and in Isaiah 41 when he uses that language he says I'm going to make the wilderness a pool of water I'm going to make the wilderness springs of water so God makes those places in our lives, those places of rest, and he makes them out of a wilderness. We get ourselves in the wilderness sometimes, and he makes that place of rest there for us. So if you've ever counseled people, you've probably had people come for counseling, which what they said was this huge, big problem. I can remember a case perfectly. Uh, um, a husband and wife had come. They had what they thought was difficulty with a son. And they're, they're telling me the, the difficulties and the problems. And I'm sitting there thinking, I know 50 parents that would change places with you in a heartbeat. And they had taken, they were in a wilderness, and they had taken this tiny little bug of a problem, and it had become huge to them. Well, God says, that's okay. I can make that a place of rest. I can give you, as, as Psalm 23 says, those still waters that are refreshing 
and nourishing. And the biblical example of that is David in 2 Samuel 22. David was no stranger to problems. And here's how he sums up his life. He says, he spoke to the Lord this song. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. In him will I trust. He is my shield, the horn of salvation, my high tower, my refuge, my savior. He saves me from violence. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. David knew what it was, as we will we'll see in a minute to be in that wilderness. And he says, I will praise God. And to keep you in that place of rest where God wants you to be and God is providing for you, God wants to fight your battles for you. We see that in verse 10 and 11. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. So he says, be still. Literally in the Hebrew, that means loosen your belt. Now what does that have to do with God's omnipresence? Well, the belt was the the way the, the warriors carried their weapons. So God is saying, put down your weapons. And we've all seen this. We've watched the cowboy movies or the hero movies. And uh, the townspeople are up against villains of impossible odds. There's nothing they can do. And what happens? The good guy rides into town or the hero shows up and he says, I got this one. I'm going to take care of this for you. Well, that's what God is saying here. He's saying, let me fight this battle for you. It doesn't matter what the battle is. It could be a real earthquake, a real tsunami, a real volcano, a big problem, a big trial, a little problem. He's saying, give the battle to, to the king and the mighty warrior, the Lord of hosts. And Israel used the Lord of hosts many times in the Old Testament, but to them, the Lord of hosts was just that. He was the hero. He was the mighty warrior of, of Israel. So when they use that language, they're saying, this is our hero. This is our king. Give the battle to him, is what they're saying. Be still. Quit striving. Quit worrying. Quit trying to change and manipulate everything. Let the Lord of hosts, the king, the mighty word of Israel, fight your battle for you. What does he say that he's going to do in that battle? He's going to exalt himself among the heathen. And then to make sure we get the idea, he puts in here again the word Selah. Rest, be still, So what he's telling us to do here with this be still is not some kind of introspective uh, meditation. It's it's an active 
part of the process, but it's an active watching of what is going to happen. And what he's saying is, be still, let me fight this battle for you, but watch what I will do. Watch what I will do with the heathen. I'm going to utterly destroy them, and you will see that. So be still, watch what God does. The Lord of hosts is with us. And so if we map these couple verses out in an outline, it says, Be still, I am God, I am the Lord of hosts, I am your refuge, Selah, be still. So he puts be still as kind of like bookends on this whole thing. And David, again, is our, our biblical example of that. I'll just read a couple of verses from Psalm 63. David says, O God, you are my God, early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land where no water is. And in verse 6, he writes, I remember you in my bed and meditate on you in the night watches. Well, this is an amazing story in Psalm 63 that takes us back to 1 Samuel 23. David and his men are in the wilderness of Judah, and it was exactly that dry and desert place. They had little water, little food. They were fleeing from Saul. Saul was trying to kill David. And in the midst of all of that, what does David say? My soul thirsts for you. Now, his body was thirsty. But he said, more importantly, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. And even in the midst of running and fighting in this battle and fleeing, he says, what am I going to do? I get up at midnight, in the middle of the night, and I meditate on you. And this is an amazing story. At the very end, uh, David is on a mountain, and his men are, are moving this way around the mountain. And Saul and his army are on the other side, moving towards David. David and his men are literally minutes away from being captured. And what was Saul going to do with David? He was likely going to kill him. So how can God work all this out in our lives, your life, and my life? He's, he's right there next to us. He's watching. And then he's, he's making these ways of escape. And as you may have heard in the omniscience class or the omnipotence class, he's, he's using his power. Literally, they had come to the point where if they moved any more forward around this mountain, they would see each other. At that exact point in time, a messenger runs up to Saul and says, the Philistines have invaded. And what does Saul do? He turns around, takes his men, goes back to Jerusalem to fight the Philistines. Now think of all the things that had to occur for God to pull that off. Now that's, that's a really common way of saying it. The Philistines had to have been moving weeks ago. The messenger had to have started running from Jerusalem days ago. And it had to be time to within perhaps 30 minutes or less, of all of this happening at once. And what happens? David is saved. And God says, I want to fight your battles for you, just like I fought David's. 
So we read the Old Testament and we we slug through some of that and we go, oh man, this is this is tough and boring. But we get to pieces like this and we go, wow, you did that for David. Oh, but you won't. That's David. You won't do that for me. And what does God say? The word came to Jonah a second time. And God is present physically in his spirit with his people and he's present ethically. And in this case he saved David from dying by thirst and starvation and by the sword. In our last point, God wants to fight your battles because you are special to him. And that's in verse 4. And he says, there is a river the streams of which make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. And this is a very poetic passage. This is one of the few places where God is called the Most High. It's only used in poetry in the Bible. And he proves his power here in this verse by calling himself the Most High. And what is made glad? The city of God. That holy place, it's sacred and it's pure and it's pious. And Exodus 19 tells us what that place is. Where God says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So who is the city of God here? In verse 4, it's the people of God. And we are made glad by these streams that flow from the tabernacles of the Most High. Now as we think back to that tabernacle we talked about earlier, uh, if you've looked at any of those charts, you know that there, were, uh, there was the, the altar and the laver and the basin and the table of showbread and the candlesticks and they were all laid out in a certain order. And they were all at varying distances from the Holy of Holies. They were all outside of the Holy of Holies. So the place where God was present was had different levels for, for the Old Testament people. Some of them only got to the, to the altar for their offering. The priests were at different levels. The priests were closer than the people were. They were all at varying distances. And we all know that in the Old Testament, what could man see of God? Only his back, never his face. So when Moses saw God, God had to hide his face and show him his back. And Israel wanted to see God's face. They had this sense that that's what would help them. Psalm 42 says that, uh, Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. So they were talking about wanting to see his face. And in the ironic benediction, which is the benediction that Aaron is told to speak to the people in Numbers chapter 6. God says, I will make my face to shine upon you. I will be gracious to you. I will lift up my countenance upon you and give you peace. And that never happened for anybody in the Old Testament. They could only imagine in the Old Covenant about seeing God's face. But the covenant changed. It went from an old covenant to a new covenant. 
And Jesus fulfilled that ironic benediction. And because of Christ, because we've been brought close to God, because we are the city of God now that, that sees that Most High, there's no longer any varying distances. We're close. We're close to God. We're close enough that, that He can pick us up and He can mold us and shape us and He shows His face to us in, in, in astounding ways. He gives us peace and He imprints us on His hands. That is a God that is close to His people. So like the missionary couple, like King David... Like Paul, God's closeness is our comfort. But more than just having his closeness, we have a God who is a mighty warrior, who is our king, Yahweh, that warrior that fought for Israel, and he loves us and fights our battles for us. So what does he say? Take rest from the battle. I will make your life an abundant place of pools of water and springs of water. Put down your sword. Calm your weary spirit. You are mine. Be still. Watch what I will do and be amazed at how I will conquer your enemies. So God is close enough to touch. Stand still and see the power of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have considered these scriptures and you have told us truths that encourage our hearts. You are close to us. And we know that we are your children. We know that there are times we fail you. But as we've seen, you are close and you are close in confession. You are close to pick us up over and over and over again. Help us to leave here knowing how to help other people understand how close you are to them. And even for those heathen that we might counsel, help us to communicate to them that that closeness is something they can never experience until they look into the face of God and say, God, save me for I am a sinner. Be merciful to me. You have been merciful to us. You have filled our hearts, and we pray that you would bless us the rest of this day as we seek to know you more. We love you, and help us to love you better. In Christ's name, amen.